Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. I'm Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanya. That's Creole for something extra. There is a poet, an historian, a computational virologist, and an MIT professor who studies how rivers shape landscapes on Earth and other planets. Geomorphologist Taylor Perrone is one of 25 new MacArthur Genius Fellows. The award is an acknowledgment of the fellows' demonstrated talent in their fields and their current and future stature as leaders in those fields. And Professor Perrone joins me now as part of our series highlighting local fellows, the genius next door. Welcome to Under the Radar, Professor Perrone. Thanks, Callie. It's great to be here. Well, it's great to have you. Of course, we have to start just explaining everything <laughs> because your, you know, what you do, even your title, is probably going to be a mystery to a lot of general listeners. So, first of all, let's just give a little background on um, how you got there. You have a degree in Earth and Planetary Sciences and Archaeology from Harvard University and a Ph.D. in Earth and Planetary Science from the University of California. So... When you put those two together, is that geomorphology? Is that the fusion of those two degrees that you got? Well, I hope it is because that's what I'm trying to do now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a jargony term. So I call myself a geomorphologist, which literally means someone who studies the shape of the earth and planets. And uh, maybe a, a clearer way to explain that is that a geomorphologist is someone who studies the mechanisms that shape the surface of any planet, and especially Earth. And what I try to do is figure out how landscapes like mountains, valleys, rivers, or coasts uh, emerge from a combination of tectonic shifts in Earth's crust, the climate, and here on Earth, the presence of life. So we try to take that and figure out how we can look at landscapes and read them to try to figure out what happened in the past and also to anticipate what might happen to a planet in the future. So before I delve more into that, I'm really curious, what drew you to this? What, you know, as you're doing these studies, were you thinking, hmm, I'm going to, I mean, how did that come together? <laughs> yeah, well, you, you're quite right that my undergraduate degree, actually the first word on the diploma is anthropology, which is pretty different from what I'm doing right now. And I started off very interested in humans and the way that the physical environment and climate in the past had shaped human civilizations. And along the way, in the course of studying that and getting interested in everything from literature to art history, I got more and more interested in the physical environment and how that had influenced people. And so that progressively snowballed until I ended up uh, majoring in earth and planetary science and going on to get a PhD in that field and really focusing on the mechanics and chemistry of landscapes. But actually, at this point now, uh, we are circling back in my research group to archaeology mm. and we're getting interested again in how landscapes have shaped the human past. So how do you do that? You know, you go into your lab every day and then what? What are you doing? 
Well, there's a whole bunch of different tools we use, which is one of the reasons it's, it's fun to be in earth science. We rely on field work. So we like to go out into nature and make measurements and observations and try to come up with problems that we want to solve about how landscapes change over time, and how they've been influenced by everything from climate to plate tectonics to life. And so one thing we do in the course of doing field work is we make measurements of topography. And we can do that using a bunch of different techniques, including some recently developed technologies that can scan Earth's surface at really high resolution. We also use remote sensing data, uh, like satellite images and radar. And then when we come up with a question we want to answer, and I can tell you about what some of those questions are in a bit, we try to come up with a mathematical explanation, a hypothesis that we can test using quantitative techniques. And sometimes we actually use computer simulations to try to speed up the clock of how the Earth changes through time so that we can understand how landscapes might have changed over the course of thousands or even millions of years. And so we combine all those techniques to try to test our ideas about how Earth and other planets change over much longer periods of time than we can actually observe directly. Hmm. And then the other thing we do is we've made a habit of branching out into other fields by collaborating with people in other fields who study everything from archaeological sites to the physics of granular materials to even the biology and genetics of fish, who can also help us understand everything that's happening out in the landscape. So when I first started reading about your work, there was an emphasis on rivers and valleys as a kind of a centerpiece of how you do your research. Is that still a part of what you're discussing? Yes. And there are a variety of different problems we like to study. Everything from how climate shapes landscapes on Earth to landscapes on other planets to landscapes and humans. But rivers are really the common thread that unites all of those things. And so one thing we try to do is to take the knowledge we have about how rivers shape landscapes by, for example, cutting down into rock, making valleys, moving all of that eroded sediment that comes from the little pieces of rock that have been scraped off the mountains across the continents, depositing it somewhere else. And by doing that, changing the topography, we try to use the resulting landforms to try to understand how we can read something about the past. So for example, you've probably seen uh, pictures of river networks from space, and they kind of look like the branches on a tree, right? Mm -hmm. Well, why do all rivers make that pattern? There's not a genetic code that tells all rivers to do that. So there must be some kind of underlying mechanism that creates these beautiful patterns. So one thing we did was to put together a, a hypothesis and eventually a mathematical model for why rivers form these branching patterns that look like tree limbs. And we tested that in a bunch of different places with different climates. And we actually found out that the scale, so the, the size of the smallest branches on the river network, you know, like the little twigs on the tree, those actually are a signature of landscapes that have different amounts of rainfall and that have different biological communities that are affecting the soil. So we can use the same underlying mechanism and how that plays out differently in different locations to be able to understand something about climates of the past and how life has shaped Earth's surface. 
And that gives us a better idea of what might happen to those landscapes going forward. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guest is Professor Taylor Perrone, who is one of the 2021 MacArthur Fellows. All right, so now you've talked to me about the rivers and the valleys. Just a question that seems to be screaming to me because we're talking about climate change all the time. Are you the folks, you and your group, who can see that climate change so clearly because you're looking at the changes in the landscape and you can see with your own tools and eyes to some degree that a lot has shifted? Well, my group and I don't study human-influenced climate change directly. But we do study the influence of climate on landscapes. And one of the reasons we're interested in doing that is so that we can use lessons from the past to try to anticipate what climate change, including climate change that's caused by humans, might do to affect the landscapes that we live on in the future. Can you see that, though, from your work? You know, from the human side, we know about the polar ice cap. But is there something equivalent to what you see on the landscape and you go, "Uh (laughs) uh-oh, you know, 15 years ago, this something's changed here. Well, you know, it's it's always challenging to watch this happen in real time. And so one thing we try to do is average over longer periods of time so we can really understand more precisely how differences in climate might influence things like erosion rates. So mm-hmm. how fast a river might uh, carry away pieces of rock and soil. And by doing that, potentially change the landscape around it. So one thing we've done in my group to try to get at the influence of climate on landscapes is to look at natural experiments that Earth has already done for us. So what we'd really like to be able to do to to understand how climate change might influence landscapes is to create a couple of little toy landscapes that are exactly the same, except for the climates. Maybe one place has a wetter climate, the other place has a drier climate, one place has more extreme storms, the other place has less extreme storms. But we can't really do that in the lab. So we can't take an entire landscape into a lab and do experiments on it. So we try to look for places that nature has run experiments that are almost perfect. And one thing we've done is to study volcanic ocean islands. So these are islands like the Hawaiian Islands, for example. And they make terrific natural experiments because they're all made of very similar types of rock. We can measure the age of that rock because we have ways of of dating the volcanic flows that formed them. But if you look at islands in the ocean, oftentimes they have a really wet side, which is the direction the trade winds come from, and a really dry side, which is the direction that that doesn't face the wind. And so we can use those differences to measure, for example, how those climates have caused differences in erosion rate over anywhere from thousands of years to millions of years. And because we can measure that, that gives us a better handle on what differences in rainfall in different parts of the world might do to erosion rates in the future. Hmm. Now, you also look at landscapes on other planets, which is, you know, applying the same kind of technique and interests. And I noticed in 2018, you were quoted about this research that had been done by Italian researchers finding rivers on Mars, or liquid water actually under the polar ice caps on Mars. And you found it to be very exciting. So, Is this the kind of thing in your group you're looking for? Because you do focus on rivers. And there they were under Mars. Will you be spending more time thinking about what's going on on Mars? 
We are spending time thinking about what's happening on Mars, especially as we have robotic geologists rolling around on the surface of Mars, uh, exploring places where water flowed in the past. And I don't actually mean geologists, of course, I mean rovers, right? Right. And so we also study other places in the solar system that have rivers. And I mentioned natural experiments a moment ago, and planets are kind of the ultimate natural experiments because you change all kinds of things that are different from Earth, different gravity, in some cases, even different materials that are forming the landscapes. And then those experiments have played out over a really long time. So Mars is really interesting. And I think Mars is a planet that highlights how answers to some of the biggest questions about the solar system are probably written in landscapes. So why did Mars start off with lakes and rivers, but end up the cold desert that we see now? Uh, when did it stop being hospitable to life? The neat thing about Mars is that there's clear evidence that there was water there in the past flowing across the surface. And we can see it in great detail because we have fantastic data sets from the spacecraft missions. The frustrating thing is that it's not happening anymore. So going to Mars is kind of like arriving in a ghost town where you mm -hmm. can tell that it was booming at one point during the gold rush, but now there's nobody there. And so one thing that we've been studying more in my group is Saturn's moon Titan, which is Saturn's largest moon. It's the only other moon in the solar system that has a substantial atmosphere. And there's actually active weather going on there. There are active rivers, there are active lakes and coasts. The only difference is that the weather consists not of a water cycle, but of a liquid natural gas cycle and the rivers are carving into landscapes made of ice. So it's a totally cool natural experiment with very different materials than we have here. And the challenge is to understand how to take the knowledge we have of rivers on Earth and apply it to Titan, and maybe figure out if there might be life there on the surface or maybe life in the interior ocean. So since Mars is a ghost town, and I just want to just get back because you were talking about the the rover going around picking up stuff or looking at things. Mm -hmm. But they mostly the, the instrument mostly seems to be looking at rocks. So that's I mean, rocks are important to you. It's part of the landscape, but it's not rivers. So I guess that underscores what you said about too late for Mars and moving on to Saturn and other places in terms of liquid. Yeah, it's it's one of the frustrating things about uh, about Mars is that it's largely a forensic science. And that's true of a lot of, of geology on Earth, too. We're left with clues that we can pick up from the ground, some of them contained in rocks, and we have to try to, to put those pieces together and figure out what happened in the past. But if you look at the big picture, you know, even if looking at individual rocks seems a little bit slow, if you zoom out and realize that those rocks are all sitting inside a crater that once was filled with a lake that had a river flowing into it and that formed a river delta, you know, kind of like the Mississippi Delta on the Gulf Coast, but a bit smaller. Then if you see in your mind's eye the kind of active landscape that existed there in the past, I think it gets a lot more exciting. And yeah, the trade-off between Mars being sort of a ghost town now and looking at uh, other places is to go back to this example of Saturn's moon Titan, there, it's kind of like you're arriving at a, a busy main street because everything is going on now. The rivers are flowing, the coasts are active, maybe they have waves crashing on them, but you're kind of standing five blocks away from the main street and you forgot to wear your glasses and everything's fuzzy because the data and the pictures we have of Titan are nowhere near as good 
as Mars. So it really is a, a trade-off, but both are very exciting places. Well, I love what you said in your little short film for the MacArthur's that geology is like a whodunit about the Earth. And I think you've really explained to us all of the clues that you are seeing and hope to see more of in your work. Uh, and I think that's really quite exciting. I, I hear the excitement in your voice, which I believe is what <laughs> actually drives the MacArthur picks. I think they look for people who are really so into their work and so excited about it. And that stands out. That's been my experience in talking to so many fellows like yourself over the years. Um, so now let's talk about some of the fun parts of this, uh, Professor Perone. First of all, your your, your uh, job title showed up on a um, word clue, puzzle clue list, a couple of them. And it's a it's you're the answer. It's the awesome sounding job title of 2021 winner Taylor Perone, who studies landforms on Earth and other planets. And of course, the answer is geomorphologist. So I thought you'd find that fun. <laughs> you know, I wish I'd had a chance to answer the trivia question. I would have won. <laughs> yes, you would have. But that's what's happening. So here's the fun thing. How'd you find out? Where were you when they called you? Well, as as you've accurately said, they call you. And so that is becoming, that's the first part of the story. That's becoming a trickier and trickier thing for the MacArthur Foundation to do these days. Because, well, let me ask you, Callie, <laughs> if you see a number that you don't recognize from Chicago pop up on your cell phone, what do you do? Uh, don't answer. Uh-uh. You don't answer. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and then it calls again and again. And you know that if you answer it, it's going to be somebody trying to scam you into sending them a money grant. Exactly. Right? <laughs> okay. So it, it takes them, I think they may have been trying to reach me for a couple of days. <laughs> And I think it was even longer for some of the other fellows this year. But eventually I did pick up. And after a few moments of disbelief and being certain that they were probably calling me to ask about somebody else, it sunk in. And I thought two things. One is that I couldn't wait to tell my wife, Lisa, who is my co-pilot in life. And so I was really excited to, to share that with her. And the other is that I was just really happy that they chose to recognize earth science and planetary science as important and exciting fields. Wow. Um, so they make you keep it quiet for a while. I know that they had to be killing you. So when the announcement happened, who have you heard from that you hadn't talked to in 100,000 years? I mean, people must be <laughs> popping up from everywhere, right? <laughs> well, I heard from you, which was fantastic. <laughs> well, yeah, but we didn't know each other. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. Uh, no, you know, I've heard from I've heard from a lot of people I haven't talked to for a while, both in my professional life and, and also uh, friends and family. One of the, the interesting things I discovered is that I grew up in northern Vermont. And it turns out that I am the only MacArthur Fellow ever to have been born in Vermont. Wow. So I heard from a few people, uh, fellow Vermonters from way back, which was nice. Okay, so how will you use the money? Because people may know that it's uh, $625,000 and you can do with it as you will. Actually, you could just take it and go sit on a beach somewhere and stare out into space if you wanted to. Uh, <laughs> uh, most people don't do that, but but you, you do have the right to do that. What they want you to do is have space for creativity and more creativity because they've recognized you as a person that is going in some creative ways, um, trying to either solve issues or highlight issues. So how about you? What have you decided what you might do? Yeah, well, uh, the, you know, the beach sounds nice, but no, I don't think that's what I'm going to do with it. <laughs> 
ask me in a couple of months in the middle of winter in Boston, maybe you'll get a different answer. No, I, I don't think so. Uh, it's This is a, a really important question. And uh, there are a few things that, that I want to do with it. One is that I'd like to use it somehow to make it easier to work on projects with my group that could be really exciting if they work out, but that also have a high chance of failure. And many of your listeners may know that scientists support a lot of their research by writing grant proposals, some of them to federal government agencies. And understandably, it could be difficult to get a grant funded for something that is less than a sure bet. And so I think it will allow us to take some more intellectual risks. And one way that I might try to pursue that is to collaborate with people in other fields or other places around the world uh, and fields that I don't know much about, but that I think could be really helpful in the work that we do. I would also like to use it to make more time to think and do science. And for starters, one way that I'm hoping to do that is to relieve the pressure a little bit to write grant proposals this year, because that does take up a lot of time and spend a little bit more time working with my group, the projects we've, going on, we've got going on and some new ones. You know, beyond that, how I end up using it to be able to make more time amidst the constant onslaught of email and all kinds of other responsibilities, I don't know in detail yet, but I'll let you know as soon as I figure that out. <laughs> well, on behalf of your wife, I'd like to point out that you can study the landscape in the Caribbean and Bali, too. I don't know why you can't. <laughs> it's, it's there for you. <laughs> True enough. True enough. I would also like to just say something to you that when I first read about your your work, of course, it was I'm trying to get my mind around it because I'm not the science person. But in the manner in which you're uh, looking for your answers, it reminded me a bit of a course that I took at Harvard called that the kids call gas stations uh, taught by Professor John Stilgo. I don't know if you're aware of that, but he studies the landscape to look for cultural clues over the years. So it's a very fascinating class to take to really pay attention to all the the small things that you might not, you know, pay attention to and you're just passing by daily. And it just reminded me of your work, but in a, you know, coming from a different approach to the landscape. So I am I I hear you and and I'm excited about your excitement about what one can find from the landscape. I don't know if you've ever heard of John Stilgo's class. It sounds like a terrific class. I might have to go over and try to sit in on it sometime. But but I agree with you. It sounds like it's a similar strategy of, at some level, doing a forensic investigation of, of the little clues that you can pick up along the way. And it's it was shocking to see how many little clues were there when you look, you know, to, to, all along and, and, you know, and how much changed that we weren't paying attention to. Yeah, I think I think part of it is tuning your eye to figure out what among all of the details and which of the little clues are the important ones. But it's a, it's a difficult uh, skill to cultivate. Now, is geomorphology a big field? I would not say it's a big field. Uh, certainly there are thousands of people around the world who would call themselves geomorphologists, but it does have intersections with a lot of other disciplines. Uh, it has intersections with civil and environmental engineering, people who study the built landscape and human interactions with the built landscape. It has intersections with ecology. It has intersections with the social sciences. And I think one of the reasons uh, why 
geomorphology is so connected to a lot of other disciplines is that we live on Earth's surface, right? We depend on Earth's surface for resources like water, like we grow our food in the soil. Uh, sometimes we are actually threatened by natural hazards that Earth's surface creates, like landslides or floods. And so inevitably, studying landscapes and what happened to them in the past, what might happen to them in the near future, especially as humans continue to have an impact on the landscape through climate and other things, connects to the way that we live our lives. Well, Professor, I see why the MacArthur selected you. You're one to watch. Um, you even made the non-science person that I am excited about your work. So thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Callie. It's been great talking with you. Taylor Perone is a member of the 2021 MacArthur Genius Fellows and a professor of Earth, Atmospheric, and Planetary Sciences at the Massachusetts Institute for Technology. His research focuses on landscape evolution on Earth and other planets. He joined us as part of our series, The Genius Next Door. That's it for this week's edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. We're on the web at wgbh.org news, Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and available for download wherever you get your podcasts. Under the Radar with Callie Crossley is a production of GBH, produced by Hannah Ubeli and engineered by Dave Goodman. Sarah Kaplan is our intern. Our theme music is Fish and Chips by We Are Two Saxies, Grace Kelly and Leo P. See you here at 6 p.m. next Sunday. I'm Callie Crossley. Thanks for listening.